afternoon you're listening to living writers i'm t hetzel and today i'm very pleased to have in the studio lincoln hall welcome lincoln it's a pleasure to be with you t well thanks for saying that we'll see how it goes right (laughs) may it be a good hour (laughs) yes indeed um lincoln is in town uh and this is i should say uh right from the get-go that uh this is this is a taped show uh june 3rd and lincoln's in town reading from his eighth book Dead Lucky, Life After Death on Mount Everest. Um, and now, as is tradition, I'll just start us off with your bio, Lincoln, if that's, if that's all right with you. Yes, just don't let it take up the whole hour. <laughs> I just have a few pages here to read. <laughs> Actually, that's probably not far from the truth, but folks can go and find out more at your website, www.lincolnhall.net, so, and find out tons more. But here we have a shortened version. Lincoln Hall remains the only person to be declared dead so high on Everest and live to tell the tale. He is one of Australia's best-known mountaineers with a climbing career that spans three decades. He is the author of seven books, including the bestseller White Limbo, which chronicled the first Australian ascent of Mount Everest in 1984. Hall, who has worked as a trekking guide and edited adventure magazines, is also a director of the Australian Himalayan Foundation. He was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia in 1987 for his services to mountaineering. He lives in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales, Australia, with his wife and their two teenage sons. Again, you can find out more uh, at lincolnhall.net. Dead Lucky is his eighth book, and I I checked out your website, Lincoln, mm. and on it, it says, Lincoln Hall, writer, adventurer, and speaker. Was e- that is was that your listing? Did you choose those three identifiers? Uh, well, I guess subconsciously, I can't actually remember because I put that up there quite some time ago. But it is it perhaps it probably is actually because what I find as a mountaineer. Uh, is that people think I have uh, a great story, but they, there's no sort of reference to how it's told. I mean, there's no sort of literary acknowledgement, and uh, uh, so I find that yeah, so I find that annoying, really. Um, and I, I know that. Uh, well, I mean, I have written fiction as well. I have one published novel, but um, which one is that? That's not Blood on the Lotus, is it? Or it uh, is Blood on the Lotus. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the the thing about mountaineering is really uh, you don't have to uh, um, invent dramatic situations. The, the dramatic situations are there, and the emotions are there, and the responses of people are there, and. Uh, Writing those things accurately, those aspects accurately, is is a big challenge. Uh, And quite often in mountaineering books they are left out because uh, a lot of the, I guess, motivation and uh, emotions uh, are left out of mountaineering books because those particular mountaineers are actually just uh, writing a kind of... uh, 
genre which I call what I did on my holidays. <laughs> uh, uh, whereas I try to do a lot more than that. I mean, that's because I make writing is a big part of my life. Yeah, and and also part of it is as well the fact that in Australia surfing no not surfing uh, we can bring surfing into it in a okay <laughs> why not <laughs> uh, it, I was just putting the uh, mountain before the molehill um, right. or the, the waves before the shore uh, I'm not sure which uh, but no in Australia uh, mountaineering is a bit like surfing in S- Siberia that's what I was trying to say it's not um, you know so you can't like uh, if I were to write surfing books, people would understand that. Uh, uh, it wouldn't be quite so exotic. Uh, well, that's <laughs> yeah, that's exactly well, exactly, that's right. But it's it's um, but the point is that because uh, the because people aren't familiar with mountaineering, I have to explain everything, and you don't want to say now this is a pitten and it's made of steel and it's got a little hole in the end there where you click a carabiner which is like a link thing which you know you don't want to say all that because that's that's sort of textbook type dictatorial or not dictatorial uh, didactic uh, and um you know it's so you've got to somehow explain the equipment without it being interrupting the narrative and uh and the same with the dangers who do you, so wait i think who who do you imagine when you're writing when you were writing dad lucky as your, who is your audience? Because you're talking about like what sort of level of technical detail to include because you don't want to lose people. But are you also, would you also have mountaineers as a great percentage of who actually buys your book? Or, um, or do you imagine that it's sort of the, a lay per- it's someone, it's a surfer who's got a summer reading or her summer reading uh, book tucked under their arm or someone in an airport who picks your book up to read and so that's who you're, you're, you're writing it for or, or is there um, a, a purposeful, <laughs> yeah, a, a purposeful inclusion so that you know that mountaineers are also reading these books? Who are you writing it for? Women. <laughs> glamorous <laughs> glorious women <laughs> well um uh th- but actually in fact my public my publicist back in australia uh th- felt that the i'd already written it by then but i think it still works uh was saying this is the kind of book that women will buy to give to their friends oh, so you to, uh, or joking. their boyfriends okay. you know <laughs> well I, i'm always joking but um <laughs> But, yeah, so I think that uh, uh, that's probably a good way to go, particularly with this book, because, I mean, well, I guess I've got my broader audience, which does encompass mountaineers. Um, I, I mean, I have a... Well, I'm one of, <laughs> I was going to say I'm the preeminent uh, mountaineering writer in Australia, but that doesn't take much to be that, um, because there aren't, there's, only, there's no one else that's written more than one book, as far as I can remember. But, um, so you've got that sewn up. I've got that sewn up, yeah. But, uh, and I have written biographies of other climbers. It's not just my... Well, Sufir, it, for example. Yeah, it's like, but she's not a... What I, that's not a what I did on my holidays type story. No. That's a very different story. But, um, so... Yeah, but I think I do try and write to to a large audience, and I think particularly with Dead Lucky, because, uh, well, obviously it involved climbing, but the the you know when I died, 
Well, let's just let's just set up set up the uh, yes set up the, the the scene, and the scene is that um, I guess Everest hit the news uh, in the middle of May two thousand and six, when a British climber, David Sharp, died, and uh, the news ca- came out uh, from cowboys at base camp with a sat phone and um, a laptop. Uh, they the word got out that 40 people had marched past um, uh, David Sharp, who was up at 27,500 feet, something like that. And, uh, yeah, that 40 people had marched past him on the way to the summit and he was grasping at their... their uh, um, uh, what do you call those things? Heels. Yes, and um, uh, so that was the. That's what the cowboys put out on the on uh, to the onto the the news waves, and because uh, so people just ignored someone who was obviously sort of there dying, but just went along to continue to forge ahead to the summit. Well, no. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. But you see, you've you've been sucked in by those cowboys with the satellite phones who put that forward. The fact that yes. I mean, one of the things about one, it's and one, that I trust you. <laughs> oh no, no. Well, good. That's very nice because we haven't known each other very long. Exactly. But uh, no, the thing is, uh, what you know, it, it's this is what this is the the dynamic. This is the the, the message that got out like to the, the world. Like the sensationalism that kind of goes out quickly. Yes. Well, the fact that um, if you if you think of any disaster, think of nine eleven. Uh, you know, I remember. 5,000 people were dead. I'm not saying that 3,000 or whatever it mm. eventually was is, is, is not considerable, but right. whatever disaster, either it's in the wrong place or it's, you know, there's details are wrong and often major details. And that's why journalists go to journalist school and learn how to do research and, and not just Google things or even worse, Wikipedia them. Um, but the... Amen to that. Yeah. So it's... But that's the way the world's going. Information is so... Um, uh, disrespected because uh, it's guess. O- omnipresent, isn't it? There's so much of it. But yes, it's yes, not it's, it's correct. Yes, usually yes. all of it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. So anyway, so uh, to get back to the 14th of May. So yeah, what happens on the northeast ridge of Everest is that you're at, uh, you know, you start climbing at midnight from the high camp at 27,000 feet, and the reason you do that is you have. Oh, 1,500, 1,600 feet of height gain to, to, to uh, conquer. No, conquer's not the right word, to, to, to deal with. But uh, you also have uh, a horizontal mile. And it's not like it's a smooth crested ridge. The ridge is actually covered with boulders and tors and it's really not, you don't walk along the crest of the ridge. Mm-hmm. You do in a few places, but, but mostly you're going along the side of it. And it's like going across the side of a, a roof. You know how roofing tiles are sort of stacked uh, so to shed the water. Well, the sort of the strata on the north face of Everest is sort of designed to shed climbers. It's sort of like that, but it's fairly easy angled. But you do have to pay attention. So, but it is a long, slow business. So that the climb, well, at least when I did it from that high camp to the summit, was nine hours, and and so uh, in the in some of it in the dark. Most then. of it in the dark. Yeah. Yes, because. Uh, uh, that's right, most of it in the dark. And so David Sharp, who was alive on the 14th of May, having climbed somewhere near the summit and then descending and not being able to go any further than that point where he 
eventually died. He was beside the trail. There was another body there that had been there for 10 years. And, um, and people walked past him. Now, the thing is that there's the climbers are generally warned of where the bodies are. I mean, expedition leaders say, well, you've got to watch out, there's going to be bodies here and don't freak out and that kind of thing. And um, uh, because it's good to understand the mountain. I mean, not you get you talk about other things. Not, you don't just talk about dead bodies. You talk about, well, there's a section at 28,000 feet that's going to involve this. The, the big st- second yeah. step. or the, Yeah, the yeah. second step. Well, that's actually, yeah, that's, oh, yeah, that's, a, that's a bit, a bit uh, um, higher up. But okay. the, uh, uh, so the, the thing is that... Um, you know, you, it's dark, and you have a, a headlamp which has a, a throw or a spread of the beam that's maybe two or three feet, and you're looking at where you put and your feet. And quite narrow, yes. Yeah, and you're told that there's bodies there, uh, that there's bodies along here somewhere, and suddenly you see one, and you just keep going. Because the other thing is you, I mean, nine hours to get to the summit, and then you've got to get down. You've got to get down as far as you can, because the further down you go, the better your chances are of surviving. So it's a very big day, the summit day. So there's always a pressure on t- of time, but there's also you always have to pace yourself. So you're not stopping to look at um, look at the flowers, of course. There's no flowers, but you're not you don't stop. <laughs> but if to, there were, you, you you wouldn't stop. Just like you don't stop to look at the bodies, uh, because that's the idea is, is is getting to the summit and getting back. Or if you realise you're not going to make it, get out of there as quickly as possible. So that's the scenario. And but uh, coming down via the same route. Uh, in the, I guess, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning is the time, maybe 12, that people are coming past there. And, of course, it's broad daylight. And uh, the um, so what happens then is that what happened then was people did, some people realised that David Sharp was, was alive. But he wasn't sort of saying, hey, wait, you know, wait for me or anything like that. Because he had no energy. Well, he was point. more than that. Frozen. His legs were frozen solid. Yeah. They were bent and frozen solid. And the reason they were frozen solid is because his body had no longer been able to keep him him warm. And the really extra- and it goes to protect like the organs, right? The warmth clusters the, around your vital the heart organs and, and your the, brain. Yeah. The brain. Okay. And and the strength of his, I guess an indi- indication of the strength of his will to survive with his his legs were actually frozen solid. Uh, that uh, uh, and yet he was still able to mumble. I don't know if anyone. There's a bit of dispute, not dispute, but unsurety about whether he said his name or he just grunted. But he certainly, he was so close to death that, uh, you know, uh, the, there's no way that he could have survived, I, I, I really believe. And the, just a final thing on that is that uh, at near the summit of Everest, uh, there's 30% of the oxygen you get at sea level. And effectively, your muscles are a third as powerful. So you're trying to lift a man that's three, you're trying to lift three men. And it's just not possible up there. And so people did realise he was alive on the way down, and uh, but not many people. And there was nothing. They, they tried to help him. Some of them, one of them, tried for two hours, and someone else tried for an hour. And uh, and then you have to continue down, or they they well, yeah, potentially well, could fact, have lost their well, lives. Yeah, one well. of those. One of those. There was a couple. There were two people who were, one was the leader of a Turkish expedition who realised after two hours that they had to get out of there. The other guy was ordered down after an hour by his expedition leader to say, because you've got to get down because you're running out of oxygen, you, you won't make it. So he came down and he was shattered. He was in tears at the bottom of the mountain. So that, that's, ro- that's the real story of David Sharp. So, and, and that's the way of setting a scene. And, and Lincoln, thank you. We'll, we'll take a short break now, and then we'll come back with Lincoln Hall today on Living Writers, his book, Dead Lucky, Life After Death on Mount Everest. 
Good afternoon. If you're just joining us, my name is T. Hetzel, and you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor and Living Writers. Today in the studio, Lincoln Hall, with his eighth book, Dead Lucky, Life After Death on Mount Everest. And so, Lincoln, you're actually on a, a, a book tour right now through the states. Mm-hmm. I imagine you've already done already done your Australian book tour um, long yeah. ago because yes. the book was out a year earlier there, right? Uh, yes, pretty yes. well. Okay, mm. so but now you're you're hitting the U.S. tour, and let's see, you've already been to some diff- New York City, San Francisco, um, Colorado, other places as well, Canada. And then next you'll be heading out to Chicago and Seattle. Um, and that'll wrap up your U.S. tour. Yes, I'll be, yeah. uh, I'll be away for five weeks, which is quite a long time to be talking about oneself at length. Right, right. The great thing about a book is you write it once and then everybody can read it and you don't have to... Uh, um, keep telling the story well, you, well yes except for the book tour part I guess. <laughs> oh yes yes that, yes well that's different because you're talking to an educated audience hopefully oh, knock on wood <laughs> well lincoln when we when we left uh for the break uh, you had been talking about uh david sharp's story and how uh that gave uh uh gave your story uh dramatic r- resonance yeah, it's hard. You don't even need to use the word dramatic in this framework because everything is just as a given. The drama is there. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, the th- yeah, uh, but yeah. how to articulate it? Well, uh, well, it's well. Just telling it out how it is is enough in in some instances, but uh, in some parts of the the story, but other parts require a different approach. But in the the the, the reason that my story uh, resonates so so widely is because of the uh, understanding, the misunderstanding, as it turned out, of David Sharp's condition, where uh, people chose ambition over saving a fellow human being, whereas it wasn't like that. Uh, And so then, when 10 days later, um, I died, and, uh, and then the next day, some people uh, found me sort of... um, at dawn. At dawn, yes, having gone through the night, and uh, somehow, and and then they immediately they didn't even talk about it. They went into rescue mode, and rescue mode involved tying me to a nearby rope because because I had been left for dead, and therefore, if I was on the rope that the climbers used, I was obviously a, an obstruction. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so they tied me onto the rope. They tried to. Uh, establish my mental condition which was uh, a bit misleading really because uh, i greeted them with the words i imagine you're surprised to see me here wow so lucid <laughs> yes yes but, the, but that was witty. a facade <laughs> yeah that was a facade really but actually it was well it was also indicative of where i was in my head um yeah but but anyway that the, rather than going into those details the thing is that uh, that my the, that rescue and it was in, in fact Sherpas had brought me down to a certain point. It was only twenty eight thousand feet, but it was to a point where the climbers coming up were able to save me. It was a, there was a flat place, only a very small flat, about the size of this table here, and that um, the uh, so which is like a ra- like kind of like a large kitchen table. It's not very yes, large yes, at all. Yes, yes, okay, yes. just for the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah, there were no pumpkins on it, unlike this one. But the um, uh, 
though I had hallucinations that could have had pumpkins in, <laughs> but I didn't happen to have. We might be hearing those from from the bit that you read to us later. <laughs> yes, or maybe uh, Jesse will play some smashing pumpkins. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the thing is that uh, the uh, there was the example of uh, those four climbers was exactly what everyone wanted, everyone wanted the, re- the response to be when someone's in trouble, which is basically um, uh, the priority of human life and, and of uh, sacrificing the, their ambition uh, for the summit. Uh, so, um, no, I'm sorry, sacrificing their ambition uh, f- to save my life. So that, that, that was a, a fantastic uh, thing. And the other thing was that, um, the other part of it was that uh, I mean, I had been declared dead, and for twenty. Could you? Could you um, no, I tell couldn't. me about that. Like, no, <laughs> later on I can tell you about okay, that. Okay, because they poked you in the eye too, right? That's pretty uh, drastic. Uh, but I guess yeah, you, if you're dead, you're you yeah, know, it what does it matter? Yes, yes, that's right. And uh, but anyway, the thing is that the other the other I guess thing that that warmed people's hearts was the fact that I was dead for twenty hours. Well. No, I wasn't really. Uh, nice but way to put it. <laughs> the thing that warmed people's hearts. Well, yes. No, but that's the good thing about clauses is you can put them together and get the opposite meaning. And uh, so the second clause is that, um, and it's not Santa, is that... <laughs> it's a writerly move. A writerly move. was Well, it was, was the fact that... Um, now I've completely lost it. Whenever I think of Santa, oh, I, no. I, I think of yak bells because Santa has bells and yaks have bells and yaks are a part of my story. Um, so where were we? Where were we? Let's see. Well, the um, the first part of the clause, it was something to do when you have, let's see. Now I've lost it because I started <laughs> imagining yaks as well on the, on the trail. Um, well, let's see. It must have been something to do with um, if you're going to be declared dead... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I was hours, declared. It was war- warmed people's hearts. Yes, yes. Uh, no, it's all right. I've got okay. it now. Okay. Thank you. The uh, No problem. For 20 hours, my wife thought, and my kids thought, and my friends and everything thought I was dead. Now, for 12 hours of those, there was, I guess, adequate, not adequate, there was reasonable cause for that um, belief. Uh, but the 12 hours was when those four guys came and found me. But it took another eight hours for people back in Australia or even, yeah, to, to, to be convinced that the reports that I, rely, that I was alive were uh, Actually justified. True. Yeah, were true. Uh, because, because of the misinformation about David Sharp and just because, uh, uh, you know, there are... 11 people, 12 people died up there, 11 once I sat up. And um, so the, uh, you know, I mean, if someone else could have sat up and then, instead of me, or maybe there was someone who, who was thought dead who wasn't. And so you don't, the last thing you want is false hope. And so there was 20 hours there. And so ultimately uh, I managed to survive the night and the reason I survived the night was because I uh, wanted to get back to my family. And that sounds a bit sort of... Um, uh, almost cheesy, but it certainly wasn't. It was. <laughs> I'd still be up there if it wasn't for them, uh, because it was so easy to die. It would have been. Well, I'd already done it and got over it, so obviously it's easy to die. So, um, and uh, I mean, this my story is scattered with near death experiences. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit like the coyote, you know, in the in Roadrunner. Uh, so. <laughs> Wiley. <laughs> yes, Wiley. Yeah. So it was so. In your hallucinations Us. from that time, were you? Did you have pictures of your family? And uh, because how the, do you mean? Well, in my pocket or 
oh no no in the when you were um when you were imagining and, and when you were alone there and you said what saved you was the idea your love of your family wanting to get back to them so were those part of the hallucinations that the, your family was sort of in your mind and that well, sustained you? Well, no, um, it was quite different. What happened was um, the climb to the summit went perfectly well. It couldn't have gone better, in fact. Uh, nine o'clock in the morning, I was standing on the summit, perfect weather. The photo's beautiful in the book. Yeah, yeah well, that, that helps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And it also, <laughs> support, it also supports my story. But uh, the... Uh, yeah, so so everything was going well, but then only a hundred feet or so, two hundred feet below the summit, uh, I was stricken with cerebral edema. Now, cerebral edema, I mean, happens in various medical conditions, but at uh, altitude edema, um, well, edema at high altitude, cerebral edema at high altitude, uh, is is so severe that it, it puts extraordinary pressure on your brain that basically you go crazy. Now. Unfortunately, I mean, I've rescued with someone with cerebral edema, so I know what they're like. They're aggressively uncooperative. They just want to sit in the snow muttering nonsense. You've got to try, to try and to move them. Well, there's another, on that occasion, there was another climber with us, and so we were able to help one on either side, like a drunk guy that you take to, the, to his car or put him in the gutter or wherever you want to. You know, I mean, it was really hard to carry someone who doesn't want to be carried. And so, but, I mean, I wasn't displaying the... Um, the not wanting to be carried. I, I, I wanted to go back up the mountain. Apparently, there were three black women up there that, that, wanted, to, that I wanted to meet. And, um, and, and then I was trying to jump off the Kanchung face. Now, the Kanchung face is actually the, the highest place you can jump off uh, in, 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 in the world, really, because it's, ver it's vertical drop-off. So you get a fair bit of momentum. So if you do that, you, you know, you get in the Guinness Book of Records, <laughs> except you need to have those guys up there who are judges. And um, right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, so I was doing that, and I was also pulling my oxygen mask off. I've climbed a lot of mountains, a lot of high mountains, but I've never used an oxygen mask before. And uh, so here we were, here I was, just totally, uh, we have an expression in Australia called off my scone, which means uh, just totally lost it. And, and unfortunately, I burnt all the energy which I'd kept in reserve to descend. So at 28,000 feet, I could no longer... Well, Pemba, I wanted to say something to Pemba. I had the words all lined up, but I couldn't actually speak. That's how exhausted I was. I was just lying there, motionless, unable to speak, with the word, wanting to say something, but couldn't speak. So that's where I was. Because you had used up that um, third of the ener the muscles, had that third of the energy. You said uh, if they were functioning at full capacity at that altitude, and then... No, it was more than the fact I was dead, yeah. Because you'd worn it all, all the energy because in your I, body down. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I wasn't quite dead then, but um, uh, but Pembus, uh, talking to him afterwards, uh, he saw I was just lying there in the snow, glazed eyes, uh, staring up towards the summit, and I mean, it just happened to be where I was lying. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, the thing with the cerebral edema, it, it it basically kills you. That's what happens. Okay. Mm. Well, that's. Uh Cheerful breaking point. We'll, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Living Writers. Uh, today, we're lucky to have Lincoln Hall here in the studio with his book, Dead Lucky. We'll be right back. When I got back home, I found a mess. 
message on the door Sweet Regina's got to China Cross-legged on the floor Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is T. Hetzel, and today on Living Writers, we have Lincoln Hall. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Jesse Johnston, who just uh, got his PhD. And uh, Jesse's going to be doing some traveling, um, some world traveling coming up here. So our engineer will be leaving uh, his, uh, his engineering post for a while, but he may be back. Um, but anyway, Jesse Johnston, doctor. <laughs> All right, so Lincoln, um, thanks for allowing me that moment. Um, Lincoln Hall, um, reading from Dead Lucky, Life After Death on Mount Everest. That's what we've got in store for you, you all, right now. Do you have a place, Lincoln, That because we just talked about, we kind of left everyone at the moment where uh, it was, you appeared, you appeared dead and you had no energy to move. Yes, that's that's uh, yeah, that's right. And in fact, what happened there was <laughs> well, that was where I died, and well, that's where I was declared dead anyway. And the uh, the situation was that two of the Sherpas with me, uh, one of them was injured uh, and snowblind. Uh, so he went down with uh, Dorji, who was, uh, well, in relatively good shape. Uh, staying with him were Lakshar and Dawa. Staying with me were Lakshar and Dawa. And they, I was just lying there in the snow. And um, Lakshar 
uh, you know, well, they one of them, you know, they tried to feel my pulse. They were looking for my pulse, and then they couldn't feel it anymore, and then they couldn't um, sense any breath or see any breath, any evidence of breath uh, coming from me. And then one of them poked me in the eye, which, which, uh, to which I didn't respond either. And then they were there, and they were radio con uh, contact with the expedition leader, who was seven thousand feet lower down. And um, he said to cover you with rocks too. Ah, uh, well, yes, but first of all, he suggested that they go down to save themselves, and that their last chore would be to cover me with rocks. Now, luckily, there were no rocks with which I could be covered. Because that would have been the finish. Then you would have been a marker up there. Yes, I wouldn't have had the, and that would have been inconvenient because people <laughs> like to stop at that spot because it's flat there, and. Um, yeah. That would have been inconvenient of you, Lincoln. <laughs> well, for others, actually. I'm thinking of others now. Once you're dead, you might as well think of others. Well, it's obviously changed you. Maybe we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can. But um, It's also in the book, though, so people can yeah, read about it. Yeah, and so what happened... Uh, well, obviously, there was something that... Um, the issue of death is, is, is quite a, a big topic, but... but uh, Anyway, sometime during that night, because the reason they left, it was 7 p.m., and the, the, the expedition leader said, get out of there. So they did. And, and I remember the, the, the admiring the sunset and then the fading light. And I'll just... Um, re I, uh, and, then, and then I had an, hallucin a hallucin a hallucination that involved um, someone that didn't exist. It was total... I mean, it may have been someone who had existed once, but he wasn't, certainly wasn't in the real world now because I was the only person... Well, there are other bodies up there, but there was no one alive. So I was having an, a, a hallucination, uh, uh, an interaction with this man, and we communicated, though neither of us said anything. Um, I was just um, ag agreeing to what Pemba had said, which is that I needed to stay there where I was. And the reason Pemba was saying that because it was actually a safe place because it was flat. And, um, but Pemba hadn't realised that, that I was then dying. Uh, but so, so this man appeared to make ensure that I kept my promise to Pemba that I would stay there. And the way that we secured this deal was that I showed him my socks, bowled up into a ball. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means, but, it, you know, this is the way my, ma my brain was behaving. And uh, so I'll just read a little bit after, uh, after he had vanished. He turned around and just sort of disappeared into this, well, not quite the smoke, but he was gone, and I was very aware that I was alone. Alone again, I realised, now I'm reading, alone again, I realised how cold I was, and even though I was, even though I was wearing my down suit, I decided to revisit the room with a fire. Now, that sounds a bit odd, but I'd also encountered a, 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 a secret entrance into the mountain where there were people sitting around, chuck, you know, um, joking and sitting around the fire, and of course that didn't exist. So, uh, but, but I, I couldn't find the way back in. Boulders blocked the way, I, so I scrambled over them and onto the roof of the building. It wasn't a building, it was just the mountain. I lay on rough-hewn slabs, hoping there would be some heat transmitted through the rock from the fire inside, but everything remained as cold as ice. There was no joy to be had here. Dusk was upon me, so I scrambled back along the path that I had originally followed. My socks were no longer there. I returned to the spot where I had, to, had sat to watch the end of the day. There were no colours now, only whiteness swallowing the grey shapes of the mountains across the empty valley. I thought of setting up camp, but my pack was gone. In it had been my oxygen, my thermos, my two headlamps, my spare gloves, my ice axe and my Australian flag. The whiteness came even closer. 
Soon the only things that were there were the narrow ledge I sat upon and the grey tooth of rock against which I rested my back. I thought about climbing the, the tooth, but it was only five or six feet high. But where would that take me? I sat there. I sat where I was and thought about how simple life is when there are absolutely no options. I lay down among the shards with my knees brought up to my chest and my hands in my groin. I felt the need to rest, rest in peace. Darkness was not far away. Snow began to fall. So... Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, so you in the, the, the foreword of the book, you talk about working with someone to sort of piece together what happened, like you, in, into a dictaphone, right? And then working with someone um, yes. who would ask you questions to sort of uh, get, a, like try to... Because how, how much of this was a clear memory to you or how how did you or did you have to write it well, in order to sort of have access it again well no i guess the thing was that um well my my agent margaret g her her husband uh, brent waters was a professor of psychiatry and uh semi-retired but uh anyway he offered to try and help me put together the pieces and maybe unearth some of the things that i that i, I couldn't remember and it was incredibly confronting because these hallucinations were so real uh, i didn't know what was i mean actually even when i got back to back to Kathmandu, i was still trying to track down three westerners who i'd come down the mountain with who ne who were never actually there even though i talked to them all the way down so i mean you know my, that's where my brain was that's where my mind was and uh so yeah brent um I sort of told my whole story to Brent, and uh, and in that um, were uh, that did help me. I did remember a few things, but the I guess the uh, the main thing that uh, about the hallucinations is that um, they were so vivid, and that's why they are. It was so important to include them in the book. Uh, and I had a lot of trouble initially because I thought people just aren't going to believe this. And, and ultimately I thought, well, I just have to tell it how I experienced it and, and the, the truth of it will come through. And I think that's what's ultimately happened. So trying to write it as, as sort of clearly and plainly in a way as you could allowed for, for the, the story to come, to the through line of the story to come Yes, that's that's right, and it's uh, uh, it it was it's very difficult when I'm drifting in and out of hallucinations, and uh, so it was actually a very challenging part of of the book to write, and I really enjoyed that challenge, particularly when I was felt I was getting on top of it, and it was it was certainly a part of the book I kept coming back to, because I'd get more insights as I thought about it more, as more pieces fell together, because really I was um, the publishers were very keen to get the book out as quickly as possible, so. Uh, that was my life from the time I, you know, I mean, the expedition didn't really finish until I finished the book, really, because that was what my, my healing and my piecing together the pieces for my own benefit as well as for writing, that was my whole existence. But, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's something. Because that's, that's, that's... A kind of a something that you surmounted as well because in one way it might be a defense to try and 
take a break from it, like to, to heal, do the physical things necessary to heal. Um, in the book, you say there's, uh, I've, is it hyperbaric chamber? Hyperbaric chamber, and, yeah. uh, Like a, a couple of times a week, and you'd have well, to was, sit there. Or, or yeah, well, what it was, it was a hyperbaric chamber which people divers go into when they get the bends. But the, uh, <clears throat> the, the in my case, uh, I was in a, a, a chamber, um, pressurized chamber with cancer sufferers actually, who had he- wounds that wouldn't heal. You know, they had cancers and then raw sort of wounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my case, it, it was to try and uh, minimize the or maximize the regeneration of my f- damaged fingers and so it was two hours a day five days a week for a month and uh so that was <laughs> that was an interesting time but uh yeah so there was a lot going on but but it kept you in that 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 world well, it, uh, it, as you yes said. but it also took me out of that world because those ca- those people like there was a woman oh, who had a uh, had a palate missing i mean it can cancer of the palate and if and if that didn't heal well she was going to die basically so i don't know what exactly happened but she had this amazing sense of it's this amazing spirit and so it wasn't it was uh it wasn't only me that that was facing i had faced adversity i was the lucky one and so that part of it did did help you actually in the healing process whereas yeah the writing and trying to recreate um uh the the story was I mean, that kind well, of that, kept that, you in the well, experience. Well, that helped me because if I hadn't, um, if I hadn't had the story to write, if I hadn't had the book to write, I would have just sat there f- uh, feeling sorry for myself and watching video after video or something. I imagine, <laughs> uh, but you know, but it, so, and I have a friend actually who lost thirty percent of each of his feet uh, to frostbite on one on the third highest mountain in the world, Kanchenjunga, and went on to climb the sixth highest mountains without oxygen. Mo- the the remaining five cl- climbs without that part of his feet he had to work again well learn to walk again but he also um he got addicted to painkillers he did exactly that just sat there in his room crawling because he couldn't walk when he wanted to get crawl to the fridge you know that kind of thing so he was you know it's uh, it can be a very depressing place but for me it wasn't i mean my family were there and i'd achieved what i'd wanted to to achieve in terms of getting back to them and uh and in fact getting the family aspect is is very strong in the book because yes. not only because they were my motivator. Well, and in fact, in fact, perhaps uh, had I not died, maybe they wouldn't have played such a, a bigger place. But the th- I've actually structured the book with it opens with me and my family, and then there's a um, then there's a I, we go on a trek to Everest Base Camp, and yes. and there's there's other things about the family along the way. And so, uh, and we meet my sister at the airport. She plays a role in one of the hallucinations. And certainly, when I'm believed dead, she goes being a lawyer and very. She just went into well, basically, she she uh, <laughs> um, found got the uh, life insurance form from my from my Barbara, my wife, and and activated it. So that created problems later on. Oh no. <laughs> Well, hold, we'll we'll come we'll come back. We'll take a short break, Lincoln. Um, you're listening to Living Writers uh, today. Lincoln Hall, Dead Lucky, Life After Death on Mount Everest, on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor.
secado y esto no es un examen pones apujero en mi cielo y bosques están en llamas de arrepentimiento y a nadie hay este culpa y esto no es un examen Welcome back. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM. And uh, today, uh, Lincoln Hall is here in the studio. And uh, and I'm T. Hetzel. <laughs> today, tomorrow, and always, apparently. <laughs> and, and Lincoln, uh, the only way you even qualify to be on this show, um, Living Writers, <laughs> is that you're alive. Yes. So you're the only person I could, I mean, ever even really truly make that joke with. Like, yeah, oh, I mean, yes, you might yeah. not have been able to be on the show. <laughs> yes, no. Well, I couldn't have talked about your book. I mean, no, was, I did have one uh, interviewer say, well, uh, tell me about your death. So, yeah. so I mean, uh, and in, well, I mean, and, uh, it's, it's a very, uh, it's, a, it's a confronting question, I suppose. Uh, but, but what happened to me was we've, we've talked about the, the, the way that I was seen to die and then the, um, we've mentioned some hallucinations that I had. Well, those, those hallucinations had, a, had a, a, an optimistic theme to them. I mean, my brain wasn't working very well but, uh, and I hadn't even identified them as hallucinations really. Uh, but what happened was in the middle of the night somewhere, I don't know at what stage in the middle of the night, but I came into a lucid state and I felt 100% lucid. I probably wasn't, given how destroyed I'd been by what had happened over the preceding 24 hours. But um, I, 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 I was dark. There was a, a swirling wind. It was, which I knew there was a huge precipice somewhere. I couldn't, I couldn't tell where. I mean, one of the things about climbing is so often you're in a very precarious situation. If you move your foot, you can slip and die. I mean, that's how. And in the dark, and I felt around, and then I realised 
they couldn't really feel anything. And then, uh, then I realized the reason I couldn't feel anything is because my fingers were frostbitten. And so then I, um, then the alarm bells went off and I thought, well, this is it. I'm going to die. The, the hypothermia, the hypoxia, the dehydration, the exhaustion, the cerebral edema, the sleep deprivation, the well, whatever. That, that's, that's quite enough. a list. <laughs> that's quite a list. And so I thought, well, this is it. And then I thought, well, no, this is not going to be it because I have to return to my family. I always return to my family. I, I, um, you know, I've turned back from the summit of many mountains, including Everest before, for safety reasons, just to play it safe. And here I was with no safety option. The only thing I could do was get through the night. And I managed to do that uh, using, um, well, well, I mean, it's so easy to, death is welcoming. And I, uh, uh, but I wasn't going to die. And the way I got through the night was to, just focus on my body, and uh, that's a meditative technique, but in this case, my mind was escaping from me, and I was just drifting off, so I found that I, I began to rock from side to side, and then rock, uh, made a sort of uh, spiral-type movement, a, a circling movement, and then, then go the other way around, and uh, so I had something to focus on. Without something to focus on, my mind would have drifted off, and so I managed to hang in there with that focus uh, until the next morning when when i was found but the uh the and is that part of that focus that was you describe it as as physical focus but to aid your mind but was it would you also is it could you say it's also spiritual because for you it seems like in the book um from what i've read um you had said that the mountain was very connected to your foundation as sort of the human being when you even say um, your wife, one of the reasons she would never say don't go um, because it, it was, it's, it's part of your foundation, your, your, your spiritual core even is something to well, do with this, this mountain or. Well, well, yes, I guess certainly, well, not necessarily with this mountain, well, not with Everest necessarily, but yes, yeah, certainly my character was shaped by my climbing. I started when I was 15 and the intensity of that experience at 15 became addictive and luckily it was that, not not drugs. Um, and um, so... Listening, that, kids listening. <laughs> <laughs> but that that intensity uh, is... is, is um, I guess you become hypersensitized uh, and also you... And that's one of the... Um, that there's that, that that so it's it is a, a, a spiritual uh, experience in that you connect with a greater whole in a way that perhaps uh, it's very difficult to do unless you're a you know an expert uh, meditator or a, or a Tibetan Lama or something like that. And in fact, I'm actually a Buddhist. And 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 what happened in in uh, when I died, or not so much when I died, but when um, I came back, when I returned, well, actually. When it looked like I might be alive, uh, some friends said to each other that if Lincoln pulls this one off, I'm going to kill him. But um, they didn't, or they haven't yet. But anyway, the thing is that, um, you know, my, my, my Christian friends and my Muslim friends say it's a miracle. Uh, my Buddhist friends say my time on earth's not finished yet, and my climbing friends say I'm a, saying I'm a tough bastard. So, I mean, I've got, I've got the mix there. But... And I think there's elements of all those things. Uh, but in terms of, um, you know, people ask me, was the summit worth losing the tips of my fingers? I've lost all the tips of my fingers. And um, the top joints, that is. And, and a whole toe. So, I mean, people ask me, was it worth it? Well, it wasn't worth it for the summit, but it was worth it for the insights that came from it because I became so close to death that I could see that death 
wasn't the Grim Reaper. Death was a welcoming uh, presence. And, uh, and I was close enough to death to be able to say, well, no thanks, I won't take, accept the invitation this time, but I'll be ready when I'm ready, okay? I'll be back. And, and, uh, and that sounds really sort of strange, but that's how I feel. And as a Buddhist where there's a, I mean, I, have an, I, have, I understand that the, you know, the Buddhist position is that life is a cycle, life and death is a cycle, but now I feel that I've experienced that. And so even though as a mountaineer, I felt that I was had a good handle on death, 12 friends who have died, you know, danger on every mountain. I'm well aware of my mortality. Uh, but now my understanding of the nature of mortality or the fact that um, it's not a concrete, well, I mean the fact that, that uh, well, t there's a couple of things. One is this, um, uh, the fact that, I managed to survive that night somehow. I mean, it, it, uh, there's no, it's the, what I believe possible in that respect proved to be, uh, what I believe to be impossible proved to be possible. And, and then the, 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 man, the managing to sidestep death uh, and to get that understanding of uh, life and death um, is what really makes, for me, is the, is the fantastic thing about this. Now, the worst thing about my story is what, the 20 hours that we went through when my family thought I was dead. I can imagine that that would be. And <laughs> yeah, and that was actually the hardest part to write. It was, the, it was hard to write. How did you write it? How, well, how it was hard, well, at that stage I was typing with my thumbs, but the problem was I couldn't see the keyboard through my tears. And, and writing emotional things in a true way is so difficult, which is what you've been saying about pretty much this entire story, writing it true and writing it plainly was what you had to go for in the actual um, construction, the word for word. And that's, is that why you also chose a chronological structure? Um, yes. Where you, you, you talk about preceding events. You don't, because in some, it seems like there's been um, what, what people would maybe advise, your editor over here might have said, drop us right into the story. <laughs> Put us where, you know, yeah. at that moment. But instead, you resist that. You go in a chronology. Mm. And, and so I think it, it was your way of, of uh, writing it as true as you can and writing something that's, whether it's uh, what you believe or what your family has told you about their experience about losing you for that time or writing a love poem, like trying to write something true mm. is, is so difficult. Yes, it's very easy to do the purple prose thing or to completely make no sense in those in the, when you're writing emotional, personal, deeply personal things. Or to think you have it on the page. Because you know what's there, but it's not mm, on the mm, page yet. Mm. Well, that was a challenge with the hallucinations as well. Uh, but the emotional baggage wasn't there, but it certainly was with my family. Right. Mm. Um, do, do they say that, that um, have th they've obviously read the book? Oh, yes, um, yes. Lincoln? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and they well, Barbara, was, you, Barbara, Barbara was reading it chapter by chapter, but, but, uh, and the boys, well, Dylan read it overnight and took Dorji a couple of weeks. He's, he's more a YouTube guy than a reader, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, we had the, this was going out to the world, so <laughs> they needed to read it. And uh, yeah, I mean, but it was always. I mean, my wife flew across to Kathmandu with a friend and and brought me home, and uh, there was never any resentment. It was all um, uh, it was all positive, and I guess one of the positives is that my uh, sons will never die on a mountain. 
because they saw what happened to me and they know the, 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 the things that I've achieved and yet still I could come so close to death. Mm-hmm. And so there's that, that gratitude that, that you seem to obviously have and I'm sure your family... <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, that's my, my obvious comment <laughs> for the program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean, every, every day is a bonus really for all of us, I think. And is it possible to live that way? Because this, this changes you, this experience. Well, but, but do you just readjust to being yeah, a human being? Yeah, or? Well, yeah that's, I mean, there's just... Um, yeah, there's, the one, there's one thing that I find now is that um, I really don't judge um, I mean, it, that's partly a Buddhist thing, but I see no point in judging because there were so many things there when people died, and uh, why would you know, and that these things that went wrong for me, and uh, some of the things that happened to me subsequently in the book that are quite startling, um, that perhaps I could have um, uh, accorded some blame, but uh, there seems no point. I mean, it's all it's things will be what they will be, and. And then there's the rest of your life. So, and living it as, as it happens rather than judging. And I think that's a very important thing. Thank you, Lincoln. Thank you for being on Living Writers today. I've so enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you, T. It's a pleasure. And uh, you've been listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Uh, You can catch Lincoln Hall. He'll be in Chicago June 6th and 7th, Seattle the 10th and 11th of June. Um, Thanks again to Jesse Johnston. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, June 4th, 2008. From Eugene, Oregon, I'm Jess Burns. In today's program, Barack Obama returns to the U.S. Senate with an air of victory. Argentina's farmers strike over the country's soy export tax, placing blame on the president. And police go ahead with a plan to set up security checkpoints in the most violent neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. All this and more. But first, these news headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the headlines. At least two telecom giants have unveiled plans to introduce metered internet service into U.S. markets. This means that customers would be charged according to their web traffic and would have to pay penalties if they exceed their limit. Most internet service providers charge a flat rate for internet connections based on download speeds without limits on traffic. Telecoms say the move would make heavy use